0: In church. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. Uh, if it's your first time, welcome. As John said here this morning, we are in the beginning parts of a series in the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible or your phone or your iPad or a variety of other things that you use to read the scriptures, why don't you go ahead and grab it. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Last week, we looked at the church at Ephesus, which had lost its first love. And um, no matter where you are in your journey and relationship with Jesus Christ, I think for all of us, we felt appropriately convicted. Uh, I think we all felt like there were times in our lives where uh, the fire of our spiritual life has sort of dulled to sort of just coals. And those, what we needed is a, a remember, we said three things. We said, remember, repent. And repeat, do the works that you did at the beginning. And that was really the Jesus' counsel for this church that was experiencing uh, just a a sense of God's grace in their life and in their church where the grace of God had gone sour. So if that was a common experience, I think, for all of us, today we're going to look at uh, another uniquely common experience. If you think about the course of your spiritual life or just your life in general and you were to chart it out on a graph, I guarantee you there would be valleys on that graph. There would be times in your life where things were difficult and things were hard. And there were points of tribulation, suffering, distress, difficulty, whatever they are. And if you were to look at the course of your life up to this point, you and I would identify with the valleys you and I would remember the times in our life where things got hard. Well, this letter is, uh, the chur- is to the church at Smyrna. Uh, let me tell you just about Smyrna, just for a second. Smyrna uh, rivaled Ephesus in popularity. It was one of the key economic and social and religious centers in uh, the Roman Empire. It was one of very few cities that uh, earned the right to build a temple to the Emperor so uh, it would if in our current day it would be considered one of the leading cities it would be the the Paris or the Los Angeles the New York the Hong Kong one of those major kinds of cities Uh, and the letter to the church at Smyrna is to a church that is unknown in the remainder of your Bible there is no other letter that is given to this church. There's virtually nothing known about it. Its ministry is, um, is known really essentially only to Jesus. So while it exists in a social and political and religious hotbed in its day, its ministry is, is virtually unknown. So this is an interesting letter. This is the shortest of all of Jesus' letters that he gives to the churches. Uh, and I'll tell you why that's important in a second. Uh, this church, is facing difficulty. Uh, And this church isn't just facing, as we'll see here this morning, tribulation or difficulty. Uh, It faces religious persecution. So as Jesus writes this letter, would you agree that those valleys in your life, those times where you've journeyed through difficulty, uh, you have found that there are essentially very few important things in your life? That as you go through times of difficulty and hardship and tribulation, you start to, to uh, take weight in your life and run to the things that are essentially important about who you are. The things where you would lay hold of them and say, I've got to hold on to this. I can let everything else go, but this is the most important thing to me. Well, that's what the church at Smyrna is about. And I love that this letter is so short because Jesus doesn't give you 68 verses talking about suffering. He gives you four. And he says to this church two pieces of counsel that are essential to you and I as we journey through seasons of suffering. Now, this is going to be applicable uh, from everywhere from somebody who's experiencing difficulty and hardship here this morning to somebody who's all the way on the other side and who's experiencing religious persecution. This is a letter that you and I need? Have you discovered that the church in our culture and our time is no longer the home team? That there are now rumblings in the culture that disagree with the historic Christian faith? Well, this is a letter that Jesus gives to a church in the city of Smyrna that is the kind of letter, it's the kind of vaccine that you and I need to journey through seasons of suffering well, all right? Four verses, 40 minutes, I think I can do it. I'm I'm excited about it, I promise you. Uh, So let's pray and let's get into this here together and see what what Jesus has to say. Father in heaven, thanks for your word to us here this morning. Thanks that uh, we can come to a God in heaven who sees things rightly and that we can approach uh, the throne of grace confidently and boldly because of Jesus Christ. So Father, for those in this room who are feeling the weights of life in a sinful world, who are feeling that they are going through journey a journey where there are seasons of suffering, difficulty, hardship, tribulation, where there is a weight and a pressure on their life, I pray that you would give them the counsel they need through this letter to them here this morning. I pray that for us as a church that we would be found faithful, regardless of what happens in the culture, in the city, and in our nation, that you would look upon us as a church as being faithful to your word, that we would order our feelings, our affections, our desires, our thinking, our speaking, and the things and the ways that we act according to the truth of your word. Father, give us grace here this morning. Reorient our hearts and minds according to your truth. Father, we are a dependent people. We acknowledge, as you shared with your people in the book of Deuteronomy, that man does not live on bread alone, but by every uh, word that comes from the mouth of God. Would we model that humility and dependence upon you and your word here this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> now, last week, uh, Jesus began talking about uh, he shares. We, we said this before, but every single one of these churches begins with Jesus uh, illuminating a truth about who he is. And that truth about who Jesus is helps to frame the counsel that he gives to the church. So last week, it was Jesus who holds the stars and walks in the midst of the lampstands. And the, the concern that Jesus has for the church was the lost love. And if they don't repent, he will come and he will remove their lampstands. So Jesus has total and all authority to open churches and to close churches. That rests on the authority and the wisdom of Jesus, who is the head of the church. Well, this week... We begin with Jesus giving you two key pieces of truth about who he is and about his character. And you're going to see as we move through these four verses why these two pieces, these two pieces of biblical theology help to frame why Jesus would say what he does to a suffering church. All right, take a look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last. Let me stop right there just for a minute. Now, we've said this before in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 told you uh, about God's eternality, about who he is, that before every beginning God was there and before and long after every single end, God will be there. And we said that what it said about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is that Jesus shares co-eternality. You can write that down. There are lots of syllables in that one but he shares eternity with God the Father. So when Jesus begins, you may have a cross-reference in your Bible that may be uh, Isaiah 41, 44, 48. Take a look at uh, your Bible. You may have a cross-reference there. And it's a quote in Isaiah where God himself speaks, and God calls himself, I am the first and I am the last. And it's in the context of God raising up nations and bringing nations down. And when God says that in Isaiah, he's talking to his covenant people, and he's saying, tell me if another God knows what was from the beginning and knows what will be in the end. And it's a rhetorical question because God's people would say, well, nobody does. Nobody knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. Before anything and everything was, God was. Before anything and everything will be, God will be. He's the first and the last, and he's everything in between. So when Jesus begins this counsel to people who are suffering, he makes sure that you know he is the author of history. He is the one who will bring every beginning and every end to its full and ultimate completion so that God, as Paul says in Corinthians, that God will be all in all. So there's your first piece, your first theological insight into who Jesus is. Jesus has complete authority, sovereignty, and omnipotence to bring history to its full and complete end. There's your first one. So if you want a word, it's Jesus' eternity. But it's balanced with another E word. Now, do you see the, the latter part of the verse? The words of the first and the last. Who died and came to life. How is it that an eternal being who was before all of our beginnings of creation and who will be there after all endings of our creation, how is it that this individual both died and came to life? What balances the eternity of Jesus? And what Jesus says, what balances the eternity is his human experience. Now, if you think Jesus came into the world arbitrarily and accidentally, where Jesus showed up on the scene and said, well, what are we doing? Here I am. Then you have a little bit of a faulty understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. If you read the book uh, of John, John's Gospel, John's Gospel is framed by a very key term in what he describes about Jesus and who he is. The book of John begins with one of Jesus' first miracles in the book of John, and it's turning the water into wine. And as Jesus is confronted with this problem at a wedding, his mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, "What, what is that to me, woman, My hour has not yet come. And that phrase, the hour, is consistent throughout the entire book of John. In fact, Jesus uses that same phrase in John 17, where then as he's sitting with his disciples, he shares with with his disciples, my hour has come. And immediately after John 17 and John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested, tortured, Flogged, experiences an unjust trial, and goes to the cross. So we have the eternality of Jesus, then we have the incarnation of Jesus. You have those two pieces that are balanced as Jesus shares this truth about who he is with sufferers. Now, why is that important? Why would those two pieces of information be the things that Jesus shares with people who are suffering? That's your question. You with me? Drakken, when you and I suffer, uh, you and I have a tendency to go through these seasons of suffering and to experience struggle, whether it's emotionally, mentally, theologically, that we begin to push and pull on our theology, right? We begin to push and pull and try to understand who is God in this moment? What is the truth that God is trying to get me to understand? Why is God beginning to remove uh, these these supports in my life that I've used before? See, and when Jesus begins explaining about who he is, the first thing he tells you is that he's above suffering, right? Right? An eternal God who's before every beginning and after every end, would you agree is sovereign and omnipotent over any and all difficulty on earth. But if I'm suffering and if you're suffering, that isn't that comforting, right? It's not that comforting for you and I to come in seasons of suffering and go, Well, Steve, God's sovereign. See you later. You'll make it. Remember, he's the first and the last. See, that's not that encouraging to me. What is encouraging to me, if that's all I had about Jesus, then Jesus would have a hard time empathizing with people who go through what I go through, right? But Hebrews says that he, because the children share in flesh and blood, which means you and I have this flesh and blood existence on earth, it says in Hebrews that he partook of the same things. Which means he experienced what I experienced. So that when Jesus balances his eternality with his human experience, it says that Jesus knows what it means to walk through life in a sinful and suffering world. So that Jesus isn't just eternal up here, but he's empathetic. He knows what you feel, he knows what life in a sinful world is like. When Jesus was born, he wasn't in the top 1%, was he? He was born a servant. He was born in an unknown backwater kind of town. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, taking on this mantle of life in this world where he was not popular. He experienced real life like you and I did. So as you begin this counsel to a church that is suffering, Jesus wants you to make sure that he is both sovereign and he's uh, empathetic that he's experienced what you and I experienced. Now, is that encouraging? That we need to know that suffering doesn't have the last word. There's a first and the last. But we also need to know that there's somebody with me in suffering who knows what suffering is like. Okay? There's your first uh, framing up of that idea. There's Jesus' eternality and his human experience. Now, let's look at his counsel to this church. Look at how he starts. I know. Now, we said this last week. This is not a... Uh, Jesus is surprised, and now he knows. This is when it refers to Jesus. It refers to Jesus' complete and thorough, thorough awareness of all that a church experiences and all of what you experience. Last week, Jesus said he knows their works. And we said that that was so encouraging because we knew that any act of faith And faithfulness in the name of Jesus Christ is not lost on Jesus. It's not forgotten by Jesus. Jesus is aware of every act of obedience that we do in his name and for his glory. Well, here it's balanced with something different, isn't it? What does he know here? He knows their tribulation. There's a psalm, uh, Psalm 56, uh, and it's a psalm when David is captured by the Philistines. And it's at a real key point in David's life where he's uncertain as to what is going to happen after he falls into the hands of the Philistines. In Psalm 56, verse 8 says this You have kept count of my tossings, you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? How close do you have to be to somebody to catch their tears? And David said, that's how close God is to me in times of my suffering. That's how near God is to me when I am fearful and I am uncertain and I am facing tribulation. So don't just read over the fact that Jesus begins the letter to the church saying, I know your tribulation. I know right where you are. Now, is that helpful to those of us who suffer? To those of us who face seasons where we're not sure what God is doing, we're not sure if God is in control, we're not sure... What's on the other side of this piece of difficulty? And Jesus says, I know right where you are. Now, tribulation for us often comes with a sense of loss. I I tried to think about this this week, but I can't think of any time in my life where I would say I'm facing distress, discouragement, uh, tribulation, or difficulty that didn't accompany with it some sense of loss. You with me? So, when Jesus begins, which is what I want you to show, show you in this letter to this church is that this church is about to experience a variety of losses. And you're going to see three here right in the beginning. First is, I know your tribulation. Tribulation is a word that uh, comes from a Greek word that means pressure. You ever feel like you're under pressure? where life is pressing on you and, and life is narrowing and you are facing seasons where you feel like the weight is pressing upon you relationally, the weight is pressing on you vocationally, that now the weight is pressing on you culturally, the weight is pressing on you in a variety of ways and seasons, that Jesus begins this letter saying, I know your tribulation. I know the places in your life where you want to Uh, where you feel the pressure cooker building. So let's just call that a loss of comfort, where you're unsettled and you are feeling mental, emotional, physical pressure. There's your first one. Here's your next one. I know your tribulation and your what? Poverty. What's your loss there? Your loss is financial wealth, right? It said um, Smyrna, existing in a Roman society, uh, the Romans gave the Jews the right to worship their own God. They exempted them from having to pay tribute, essentially, or to worship Caesar. They could get away with not saying Caesar is Lord. Remember how the Jews tried to get Jesus to say Caesar is Lord? It became a real sticking point for Jesus and the Pharisees of his day. Well, what happened probably in Smyrna is that as Judaism, Old Testament Judaism, began to distinguish itself from New Testament Christianity, that now, and what you'll see here in a second, is that uh, the Romans started to view the Christians as no longer safe, no longer exempt from being within a sect of Old Testament Judaism. And what that caused now was a growing pressure culturally upon these New Testament Christians to the point to now where they are experiencing financial loss. There are two words in the New Testament for um, poverty. One means the lack of anything excessive. It means you have shelter, clothes, food, water. And that's one word. The other word means you have nothing at all. It's a word that essentially means destitute. And that's this word here. And what Jesus does is says, I know times in life when pressure is building, and I also know times in life where you are at the end of your resources. I see right where you are when you've got nothing left financially. And then Jesus says something that's uh, very interesting. And he does it in this verse twice. But it's very interesting the way Jesus evaluates poverty and wealth. Isn't it? You see, he puts in a parenthesis there. He kind of just takes an aside and he steps back from saying, I see your poverty, I see your complete lack of financial resources and financial wealth, but you're rich. Now why would Jesus say that? Is it Jesus trying to make a joke? Is this Jesus making light of the poor? Is that what Jesus is doing? Is it kind of a theological sleight of hand that you're not that poor? You're really rich compared to others. Now, it seems that Jesus has a different way that he views uh, economics. Remember what Jesus says? Don't uh, build treasures on earth. Build treasures where? Say in heaven. You got it. Well, you nailed it. Way to go. Right Where moth and rust don't destroy, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. right? Peter says something similar. in First uh, Peter one, he says, here's what he says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable. Undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So when Jesus looks at earthly poverty, and he looks at situations in life where we don't have the resources... He doesn't blow it away. He balances it, and he explains it with where Jesus finds and where Jesus thinks is true, actual wealth. You've heard it said, how much can you take with you when you die? None. But Jesus says, watch this, there's something that I have given you that death can't and loss can't take away. You with me? Now keep that in the back of your mind just for a second because that's going to be important as we keep going. So you've lost comfort. Number two, you've lost your finances. But Jesus says you're rich. Uh, And you've lost something else. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those. Slander is the Greek word that is literally blasphemy. What do you lose when somebody blasphemes and somebody slanders you? You lose your reputation. So we've got three losses thus far that Jesus is completely and totally and intimately aware of with this church. You felt the pressure of life, you felt the poverty of your financial situation, and now you felt the slander. You've now taken a stand as a Christian and people have not thought that you are very popular. And do you see where the slander comes from? Look at the remainder of the verse. The slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is kind and meek and gentle Jesus. That's a pretty harsh term to say that they go to Satan's church, isn't it? I mean, that goes a little far, Jesus. But the Jews historically would be considered the people of God, which means something very important happened when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus now began to be a dividing marker. He divides all the world religions, even including Old Testament Judaism, and he divides it into people who know, love, follow, and serve Jesus Christ. There are two camps and two teams. And what Jesus does in this verse, did you see what he does? Jesus gives a different perspective than you and I have on our situation politically, on our situation financially, on our situation from the point of comfort and well-being, and from our perspective on things religiously. See, this is a big struggle for you and I when we face seasons of suffering, is that I'm, I My i do not know about you, but my seasons of suffering have a tendency to make me real myopic. That I can't see the breadth of the truth of the scenario and the situation where I am, I start to just focus on one little bitty aspect, and that's my pain, difficulty, hardship, suffering, whatever it is, right? That suffering has a way to make me hypersensitive just to that one thing. And what Jesus did in verse 9 is just share Jesus' perspective on what is happening. It may look like you are facing situations of poverty and lack of financial resources, but you're really... Rich, it may look like these people are the true people of God, but they really are the synagogue of Satan. Can you imagine preaching this? Can you imagine John writing this letter and communicating to the Jews of his day that they are now aligning their priorities, their agendas, with Satan himself? I mean, this isn't a big surprise for Jesus, right? The Jews told Jesus, we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus Jesus said, Abraham looked forward to my day. You are of your father who? Say the the devil. The devil. It's hard to know if you're paying attention with your mask on. I'm sorry. It's just hard for me. I don't know if you're with me or not. So you can shout through your mask. I can handle it. Right, so there's this sense now for this church that they are uh, participating in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Remember what Paul says that in Philippians. That they're now taking a stand for Jesus that's costing them relationally and culturally and financially. And reputationally. You ever been there? You ever had those stories in your life where you felt like you didn't have the resources, you felt the pressure building, and you felt now that your reputation isn't as great as you think it ought to be in the eyes of others? So, look at verse 10. You got three losses so far, are you with me? Loss of comfort, loss of financial resources, loss of reputation. Now, Look at Jesus's counsel. Here's the first of two pieces of counsel that Jesus gives starting in verse 10. Do not fear. Let me tell you two big fears I have when I go through seasons of suffering. Two big two big fears that I have that I have discovered in my own heart when I go through seasons of suffering is one that my suffering has no purpose. That my suffering is essentially arbitrary in the big scheme of things, my little bitty story or my little bitty suffering probably doesn't matter that much to Jesus, who's the first and the last, right? To God who is sovereignly working out his will through the course of all of human history, the God who raises up nations and tears down nations, that my suffering really doesn't matter that much to God, that it's sort of I'm left without a rudder in the midst of the suffering. The other fear I have when I face seasons of suffering, is that there is no presence. Not presence. But there's nobody with me. That my suffering is arbitrary. And that fundamentally I'm left in seasons of suffering to pull myself up by my own strength, my own ability, to kind of just hard-nose it. Now, are you seeing why Jesus begins with the truth about who he is before he gets into examining the suffering of this church? He gives you the truth about who he is to let you know that suffering is always under the power and the authority of God for us. It has a purpose. It has a design. God doesn't waste these moments of suffering. They're not arbitrary. They don't surprise God. They may surprise you. They don't surprise him. And two, the truth about who Jesus is lets us know that no matter what way I walk through life, Jesus has always been that way before. Right? That Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Say me. Me. You with me? If you would imagine walking, if your life is like a snowstorm, and there's been one individual who you're supposed to follow through that snowstorm, and there's nobody else that can give you certainty in moving through that snowstorm. It's the steps of Jesus that you follow because he's been that way before. He knows the way to go. And he never asks us to go through something that he hasn't experienced before. He's a great teacher in that way. So when Jesus now turns, now some of these things you've probably experienced before. You've probably experienced time in your life when finances were bad. You've probably experienced times in your life where there's mental, emotional, social, relational, marital, familial pressure. Maybe you've even experienced slander. To where you've taken a stand at your workplace or in your college or in your family and you've taken a stand for saying, no, I believe in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life and that nobody comes to the Father through me and they go, you're one of those. And the encouraging thing is that Jesus knows those situations. He's been through those, right? That uh, when we're reviled, he says, I've been reviled. When we face poverty, Jesus has faced poverty. When, Jesus, when we face pressure and tribulation, Jesus faces tribulation and pressure. But now, in verse 10, uh, Jesus' um, counsel hits another gear. Because now Jesus moves into a church experiencing religious persecution. That the first ones are kind of growing pains. This is the worst of it. And the question you and I have is, where is Jesus going to be in times of religious persecution? Look at verse 10. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. You see the verb tense change? I know your present tense, tribulation, poverty, slander. I know what people are saying about you. Now, I really wish verse 10 said something like, I'm going to take all those things away. It's going to get easier. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I know... Right, don't fear. What you are about to suffer. That word suffer is particularly related to Jesus when he gets ready to be handed over into the hands of the Gentiles and face his crucifixion. It's the identical term for what Jesus experiences. And Jesus says, I'm not taking it away. I'm not making it lighter. I'm going to tell you what's coming. Don't be scared. Now, it's really important that the first and the last are saying those words to me, isn't it? That the first and the last says, don't be scared. Be fearless. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, which means pay attention. Look up. Eyes on me. You can count on this. Here's exactly what's going to happen. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. We've had two mentions of the adversary of your souls up to this point, haven't you? You've had a cultural synagogue of Satan, and now you have the devil, which in the Greek means adversary, your opponent, is now going to be given some leash to throw you into prison, to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. There's your fourth loss. Did you see it? Loss of comfort. Loss of financial resources. Loss of reputation. Loss of freedom. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like anybody else in your Bible where the servant of God experiences a familial loss? He experiences an economic loss. He experiences the loss of his physical health. He experiences marital strife with a wife who says, curse God and die. Who's that? Who are we talking about? We're talking about Job. And the counsel that Jesus gives to this church is, don't fear. I know exactly what's coming. And I'm going to even explain it to you so that you have no mystery as to what is happening in this moment. Don't you wish you had the perspective? Aren't you glad you have Job 1 and 2 that you can interpret what's happening in Job's life? You know Job doesn't get Job 1 and 2. Job just has to go through it. Job's never told about Satan. He's never told about the schemes. He's never told about the conversation that's happening in the heavenly realms around his life. He's not told or explained anything that's happening. But here, Jesus tells his church, he gives them a picture of what is about to come. The first and the last leverages the truth of who he is to give them a forth And it's not a positive one, is it? Let's be honest. If, if you went back to your life and looked at the valleys in your life, would you have chosen them? Would you have said, I'm going to go through it. I know exactly what's coming, and I would choose that because that's best for me. I'd have a hard time choosing them. But Jesus' counsel is the same. It doesn't matter. Listen, here we are, October 4th. You made it to October in 2020. Way to go. We did it. I don't even know if that's good or not, but we made it this far. And 2020 is almost done. You can see the end. What if you knew the suffering that was coming in 2021 for you? What if you knew that God and his divine providence being the first and the last shared with you what was coming and it was religious persecution where the devil was let off the chain in your life? Do you know what Jesus' counsel would be? Don't fear. Isn't that great? Isn't, and isn't that also mildly annoying? Isn't that a little bit, of, I mean, you're letting who? into my life to cause havoc and destruction? You're causing, you're letting the the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, you're letting him get after me and get at me? What's your question? Why? Here's what happens in suffering. I I started this way, but suffering has this way of making us take stock in our life about what's most important, right? Right? about proving and helping us cling to the things that will really get us through the storm. And Jesus says, don't fear. I'm gonna let the devil loose for a little bit. How long does the devil get off the chain? He gets 10 days. What's that mean? Some commentators think that's a symbolic number. I think it's just 10 days. But I think the point is this. Some of them are gonna die in 10 days. Some of them might be imprisoned and released. But all of them have a temptation to fear that nobody's in control. And it tells you that suffering, any and all suffering, is essentially temporary, even if the devil has control for 10 days. See, the other ones could be considered tragedy. This one is persecution. Pressure in our life could be considered incidental, situational. Jesus is very clear that's not what this is. This is not an accident. This is the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air who is given authority for 10 days. Here's your second piece of counsel. What happens if the devil is let off the chain in my life? What happens if a church is now facing the wrath of demons? What should it do? One, Is be fearless. Number two is be faithful. How long? Be faithful for 10 days. Nope. Be faithful till I remove the suffering. Nope. Be faithful till I lighten it up a bit. Nope. Be faithful unto death. You go to the end. and I will give you the crown of life. See, this verse, the remainder of this verse, what hinges right here is one that suffering in this life is ultimately temporary. You with me? It's short term. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for these light and momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And it's balanced here with be faithful because there's a temporary nature, not of suffering, but the temporary nature of life. How many years you got left? Let me tell you something. In 100 years, none of us will be here. We will step into eternity. And all of our suffering, all of our difficulty, all of our valleys will be done. And Jesus says, don't move. You be fearless, you be faithful, and I will give you what? The crown of life. The crown that is life. For God so loved the world, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I missed the middle part. What's, the, what's John 3.16? I should know that. I'm a pastor. Five points off. We're taking notes on that. Write that down. Five points off. I'll give you the crown that is life. The only other time the crown of life is mentioned is in the book of James. And it's for the man who remains steadfast under trial. The same idea is here. You know what Jesus just said? Jesus said, there's something that you have. He said it really in these past four verses. There's something you have that no suffering, no difficulty, no tribulation, no loss can ever take away. That your life is fundamentally secure, even if the devil is let off the chain in your life that you can be faithful, you can go to the end, and you can lose nothing. Now, I feel like we should break out dancing in that one, shouldn't we? You're telling me I can lose health? mental, emotional, financial resources that people can slander me until the day that I am imprisoned and eventually lose my life for laying hold of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus will persevere me through death and make sure that I receive the crown of life and all of the wealth that comes from his poverty for me on the cross. Jesus, is that what you're telling me? Say yes. That's exactly what he's telling you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, why is that there? You know there's two deaths in your Bible, right? There's the first and the physical death, and there's the second eternal death. The second eternal death is in Revelation 21. It's eternal, conscious, forever torment in the lake of fire. It's eternal separation from God. The one who conquers, in context, what does that mean? It means that those who are fearless and faithful all the way to the end of their life will be shown to have been God's children. And that ultimately, any loss in this life will not. Let me actually say, hold on, I want to say this right. Ultimately, No matter what loss you experience in this life, you will never lose in the next because of Jesus. Be fearless, be faithful. I'll give you the crown of life. You know, uh, a, a pastor's job has a variety of aspects. But one of the main aspects of a pastor's job is preparing the people that he preaches and shepherds is preparing their minds and hearts for the day that they will die. See, the danger in reading this text is to view it only as the time when religious persecution comes one day. I'm not experiencing it now. This text probably isn't for me. I have some hard things in my life, but they're not that bad. I'll make it through, and I'll, I'll be okay. But what is happening in times of suffering is that you are building your faith You're building your life brick by brick by brick by brick in the choices and decisions you make about where you will place your trust. If your trust is ultimately in making it through this life unscathed and experiencing comfort, then when a a lack of comfort comes into your life and you experiencing suffering and difficulty, then you will be devastated because you've built your life on staying safe. If your ultimate hope in this life is financial wealth, then when the downturn in the market comes and you get fired and all of a sudden you start eating into your savings, you will be devastated because you've made your life and your God and your faith fundamentally about your resources. If you are moving through this life trusting that your reputation and your good name will secure the right conversations and the right relationships and move you through your career in a, benefit, in a benefiting kind of way where your life is always moving up and to the right, then when people think poorly of you for what you believe and what you say you hold to in the scriptures, then your life will be devastated. Let me ask you, what do you have in your life right now that death can't take away? What are you holding to right now that if you lost it all would be faithful all the way through when your breath leaves your body for the last time and your heart stops and the EKG goes flat and the brain waves do whatever the brain waves do? See, are you building your life with a kind of fearlessness as to what this life can bring to you? Are you building your life on being faithful to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who has been faithful to us and who's experienced everything that we would experience only to the millionth degree? See, the promise here is from the one who both died and came to life. And in a hundred years, between now and then, I've got a day coming. You've got a day coming. And the question for you and me is, where are we building our faith? So that no matter what this life throws at us, no matter what the spiritual forces of darkness throw at us, that we are still called to be fearless and faithful to Jesus Christ. I had a seminary professor who said, there are some enemies in this life that are too strong for you and me. And the only way to beat them Is resurrection which means you and I are gonna face loss and ultimately you and I are gonna face death and the only hope you and I have in that moment is that we know someone and have trusted someone who has died and come to life see this is the essential nature of what it means to be a Christian we don't come to Jesus because he's gonna make our life better he's telling the Smyrna Church that it's gonna get bad we come to Jesus Christ because he has beaten the enemy that has gone a million and oh, except for Jesus who walked out of the grave. So that our greatest hope as a church is not that there won't be suffering. Our greatest hope as a church is not that you won't feel pressure. Our greatest hope as a church is not that your reputation is intact, that people will think well of you, and that you're gonna make a million dollars a year. Our greatest hope as a church is that Jesus rose from the dead and that in him we trust. Father, for those who are suffering here this morning, for those who are facing difficulty and hardship, I pray that your words would be a comfort to them. For those who in the remainder of 2020 and into 21 may face seasons of suffering, I pray that you would find us fearless and faithful that we can trust the God of heaven and earth, the first and the last, and that we can trust Jesus who came down to live just like us, experience things just like us, and who died and came to life for us. What a great message we have. I pray that this morning that truth would settle the hearts of the men and women who are in this room who are facing situations where they feel like their suffering has no purpose. And they have not yet felt your presence in that moment. Father, I pray even today through your spirit and your word that they would have a special encounter that you would minister grace and comfort and kindness and tenderness and strength to them in this season of suffering. Father, our great hope is that Jesus rose from the dead. May that be our song, may that be the thing that we cling to in these seasons, trusting that you will see us through. And Father, may we build our lives brick by brick upon your faithfulness, upon trusting you that no matter what life throws at us, no matter what loss we experience, that you will be faithful and you have given us an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading and undefiled, kept in heaven for us how rich we are because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.